folks, welcome back to MMA, BJJ, and Life. I'm your host, TJ San Marco, coming to you from Laguna Niguel, California, where we're here to talk a little bit of BJJ and MMA today. And we are going to have on the promised Professor Brent Littell of Gracie Baja and formerly of 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu, a black belt under Eddie Bravo and Gracie Baja's Felipe de la Monica. So, uh... We promised him he's going to be here. It's going to happen here in a minute. And all is good in the world. And um, so it was like a very exciting night. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, UFC Fight Night 106. We're going to break down what happened with uh, Vitor Belfort and Kelvin Gaslam. We're basically going to hit up on the main card. We're going to talk about some jiu-jitsu stuff for those of you guys that are uh, jiu-jitsu heads. Brent is one of the funniest and most interesting guys when it comes to opinions on jiu-jitsu and, and MMA, actually. I mean, he's quite good at, at uh, talking MMA, but particularly he's good at uh, when it comes to breaking down jiu-jitsu. So um, uh, you're going to get both of those tonight. You're going to get some stories of stuff from the early days before 10th Planet was a thing when Eddie had his first academy and some stories that uh, may include uh, Renato Laranja also who is a student under Eddie Bravo and a training partner of Brent and we're going to get some news and uh, who knows maybe he'll even give us some picks on the pans there's also fights to talk about relative to the UFC regarding Frankie Edgar and Yair Rodriguez um, what else was announced this week um, Henry Cejudo against Sergio Pettis. Obviously a huge matchup with Joanna Yo, uh, Janjacek against Jessica Andrade. Or Andrade, if you're from Andrade, if you're from the north of Brazil. Uh, Demian Maia and Jorge Masvidal. Um, the uh, amazing guy from Miami. Just such a character and going to face the most, uh, maybe the most amazing grappler in MMA. So it's going to get real. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, Tony Tony Ferguson calling out Nate Diaz, um, and, um, Kelvin Gaslam calling out Anderson Silva. So there's a lot a lot to get to uh, tonight. Uh, but first thing, when we come back, Professor Brent Littell of Gracie Baja, we'll be right back on MMA BJJ and Life. Sit tight. Welcome back to MMA BJJ in Life. That is Black Sabbath. Ozzy getting back together with the boys to do Snowblind Live. Of course, we uh, started off the show with Traveling Riverside Blues by perhaps the greatest rock and roll band in rock history, Led Zeppelin. Uh, uh, Professor Brent Littell, who I'm about to introduce, might want to argue that point with me, but we'll save that for later. Uh, but he is, as I described in the opening of the show, uh, the one, the only black belt of uh, Gracie Baja Irvine under Felipe Della Monica, also black belted under the great one who we're going to talk specifically about later because I'm fascinated by the guy Eddie Bravo under the 10th Planet System. Brent, how you doing, buddy? 
I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. Today is a, an exciting day. We have the Pan Ams of Jiu-Jitsu coming up, so we had a lot of greats in the gym today, so it was very nice to uh, get a roll in with Flavio Almeida. What? And, yeah, I got very lucky with that, and then uh, Marcio Feitosa was in the house. He and I did not roll probably tomorrow, and so it's a, it's a really exciting time when the big tournaments come around and you know what uh, i don't want to digress from from the podcast but what is it like rolling with a guy like marcio fetosa what do you feel when you you latch on to him and you try to do something like for a guy like me who can't tell just you know that most people are better than me what do you feel right well you know marcio is a very interesting one um, because he is not particularly strong. So I made this point before, is that all champions I've ever rolled with, and I've rolled with a lot of IBJJF black belt adult champions, not masters, but adult, and they all have insane strength. Like, they grip you, and you feel like a child, and they are a full-grown ape, and they ragdoll you. Um, even the light guys, like, um, you know, I have a considerable amount of weight on Otavio. Otavio, um, yeah. Otavio Sousa, who's a three-time IBJJF champion, and he is so strong. But when you go with Marcio, he really embodies that Bruce Lee kind of be like water. Because mm -hmm. I can tell I am a lot stronger than him if you put us in the weight room. But he just moves me around the mat with very little effort. And sometimes he giggles. Um, and sometimes, like today, I saw him rolling with uh, another black belt and he was singing um, some Phil Collins. <laughs> um, but, but so going with him really inspires you about the true essence of what jiu-jitsu means, which is the overcoming of brute strength through the triumph of human mind and, and technique. So he, um, when I roll with him, it is, it's inspirational in that way because I can feel that he is just pure technique and not using strength. And I'm somebody that you need to use strength against. So it's not that, that he's just toying with me because then I'll go with the other high-level black belts and they're going to you know, really give it to me uh, strength-wise. So that is uh, he's a great guy to roll with in terms of that. I know he uh, he has, oh, God, I'll, I'll always mess it up. One Abu Dhabi championship, I think that was in 2001, and then he has, I think, three IBJJF championships, I'm not positive, and then he met, he was on the podium, I think, six years in a row at IBJJF Black Belt. Oh so, he's a, so for that, for him to not be just a, an athletic monster uh, is very encouraging. Because wow. otherwise you start to believe that this is like basketball or football where it's all physical attribute first and then they add technique onto that person. So that basically validates jujitsu in itself. Yes, absolutely. Okay. His, his skill set, so. I know we digress. I, we digress, I know. And I'm, I'll try to get back to this because I also want to talk about Professor Felipe because to me he's so amazing to look at the way that he moves like a cat and so i'll ask you to compare us but we'll do that later but anyway uh professor brent is here uh we are going to open the floor for anything he has as as i mentioned earlier um i'll we'll cover the results of ufc fight night brazil um and um talk about some of the what happened and what should have happened and what didn't happen, and what some things are going forward, what we think about uh, certain things like uh, Kelvin Gashlam calling out Anderson Silva um, this week. Some of the big, <laughs> I know, yeah, great. Yeah, John Jones calling out Dan Henderson. Um, 
Tony uh, Ferguson calling out Nate Diaz, Frankie Edgar gets Yair Drew. We're going to get into all that. But first, really, I want to just open the floor for anything that uh, Professor Brent has to say. Well, you know, I um, talking about all of those, that's just UFC, but I saw Mackenzie Dern's fight over the weekend. I don't know if you've discussed that one yet. I didn't, so please bring us to the noise on that because she's got to be the number one female prospect, I think, in all of MMA right now? Um, she definitely brings a lot of that hype and excitement with her coming from such a strong uh, jiu-jitsu background and a great jiu-jitsu pedigree with her father being uh, Megaton Diaz. Uh, I think he's the, he is the only black belt since we haven't had the Worlds this year. He is the only black belt to ever have competed at every world in the adult uh, class at, at black belt, so from 1996 on. But I think I believe last year was... His final match is actually against Philippe de la Monica, who, who caught him in a shoulder lock. Oh, my, it was, my shoulder hurts watching that, that yeah. video. But. So, so Mackenzie fought um, her, her MMA bout. And, to, you know, I've seen her talk about herself and the press talk about her like she's the next Ronda Rousey, um, which I don't know if that's a good thing. You know, <laughs> that should be taken. For her bank account, it's good. You know, movie-wise, maybe she'll, she'll be an entourage, too. But she, um, she, I mean, she was impressive. She won. I think she, I have reservations about her game plan and what she did. Did, did, did you happen to see the fight? I did not, so I'm, I'm, oh. I am all ears, my friend. Uh, so there was a, a lot of stand-up in the fight. Um, you know, she was doing a lot of back and forth with the woman she was fighting, and I can't remember her name. Because that fight was meant to showcase Mackenzie and not the other woman. Mm -hmm. So um, she was, she got it to the ground in this, uh, like there was a, a, a longer ground exchange in the second round toward the end uh, of the round. But really there was a lot of punching and kicking and I don't like that. Um, because I think that it will be the cliche uh, example of every BJJ person that transitions into fighting, which is their trainer starts to tell them that they got hands. <laughs> and, yeah. And they start to go out there and exchange instead of trying to get the, the fight to the place where they need it to be the way that Damian Maya does. I was um, going to say, you want her to Damian Maya, everybody. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And use her jujitsu. And to be honest, like if I were the person who was strategizing her for her next fight again as the opponent so i would be the strategizer for the opponent um i'd have a ton of stuff to pick apart on her hands now i am going to be very easy on her in the sense that this is one of her first fights she's just learning to put her hands together but here's the problem is that people like her and hodger gracie they don't get easy fights because of their backgrounds no one will agree to fight them at the lower levels so they only get difficult opponents, and they have a harder, I feel they have a harder road to actually making it to the bigger shows in terms of um, winning their fights because they cannot get, you know, the way that the current system works is you might have some amateur bouts that you fight in, like in California, there's like University of MMA does a whole bunch of those. Um, and then once you build up enough of a record of, let's say you have six or seven fights, then you decide to do your first pro fight and you're, a, you're an 0-0 fighter and you might fight an 0-1 fighter or a 1-0 fighter and you work your way up from there. But then with, you know, McKenzie or Hodger, no one at the 0-1 or the 1-0 really ever agrees to fight you. 
So you get the six and zero oh, or the six and one person who who also is a specialist, like a Muay Thai specialist or something like that. So the reason I would be a little more critical of her hands is that she's going to get thrown into the sharks really fast, and she was dipping her head a lot. Um, so the exchanges would occur, and she'd be throwing. She she didn't have a lot of combinations. She was just throwing a jab straight, jab straight, and the minute that her opponent fired back, her head would immediately dip. So she was open to the uh, uppercut or knee. Um, and then she also would close her eyes in the midst of the, the flurries. That's something her trainer, I'm sure, will work with her on. But it's like kind of a little bit scary to me when I see that stuff because I then start to picture what the next fight is going to look like. And the next one, is her trainer going to build her up like, oh, you did a great job striking in there. Let's keep working it. you know? And then she turns out to be the... Uh, you know, the next jujitsu person who gets knocked out like three times in a row. Yeah, you're sort of equating her to like what they did with Hodger Gracie where they put him against Tim Kennedy and he was he even took Tim Kennedy's back at one point, couldn't choke him out, and Tim just had enough defense and enough grappling that he hurt Roger on the feet and Roger couldn't do anything on the ground and it was kind of a, you know, that really hurt Roger's run at that point. Yeah, and then he had uh, King Mo as well. Um, so the that um, situation with Jiu-Jitsu too, it doesn't. Some of these champions don't translate as easily, and they're amazing Jiu-Jitsu players due to the the gloves. I mean, if you're an amazing back attack player as a Jiu-Jitsu uh, in Jiu-Jitsu tournaments, when you transition into MMA, those gloves make those rear naked chokes so much more difficult to sink. Most of your chokes get more difficult because um, the people hang on to them. You're not allowed to hang on to them, but right. they do. And then also just fitting through the crevices becomes very tricky. Pulling your arms out um, once they kind of grip them becomes tricky. So they suffer. They grab the gloves because yeah. in, in, in no gi jiu-jitsu you don't have gloves and they can put their thumb inside your glove and you can't pull your hand out. Exactly. So they they kind of suffer through that. It's a, it's a hard transition. I'm excited for her. I always want to see a jiu-jitsu fighter make it uh, to the top and win the championships. I just, from that one, I didn't feel her urgency to get it to the ground, and I'm hoping that it was just kind of a... a An anomaly. There. Yeah, and now I see that urgency for her to get it to the ground. I understand you need to set your ground techniques up with some striking, but I also don't want to see you think that you can strike because someone like Dana will... I don't think Dana loves jujitsu fighters, and he. he oh, really? Fight. You're kidding me! Yeah. And so he puts them. He's gonna feed you to the wolves. He's gonna find the the female Muay Thai champion. Yeah, like Joanna. Yeah, and then okay, you fight her now, and it's just not gonna work out for her. So I hope she kind of gets some good people in her corner who really force her to look at her game planning and how she can best use the skills that she have has because she's not gonna catch up in striking. Yeah, that's and I agree with you. And we don't want to see her be around a Rousey where someone is able to create distance and land some legit strikes on her. You know, it's so funny. Like you probably want to just like take the heel, the the heel of your hand and hit yourself in the head because you know Holly's game, and you knew that she, when you really, really are honest about it, she had the ability to do that to Ronda. Mm-hmm. You know the counter. You know the counter striker with a lot of movement, who will circle, circle, step back, 
and just pop you with a beautiful shot, stop your forward motion. Yeah, and you know, uh, Beth Correa, Beth Correa, Beth like right? Beth Correa. She fought this weekend, and she um, is the first person I think I saw who got Ronda kind of shook on the feet. Mm -hmm. She she landed one punch in that. I mean, there was a quick fight, but she landed one shot on Rousey that kind of stunned her and uh, made her wobble. And then I think after that, everyone who was watching that said, "Oh boy, like you know, we can just." prolong the fight on the feet we might be able to get something going and then eventually holly came in and handled her business and i think Rhonda's now just mentally defeated and i don't know if she's going to be able to make it back um, you, you know i, I want to speak to you about this because i actually recorded a Rhonda segment uh on the one the show that you weren't on which was like i think it was saturday or something i did it or sunday um I this is my theory about Rhonda, and it's you know put on your tinfoil hat and get your rabbit ears out for the top of your television set, but I believe that this was a ruse, no pun intended, cooked up by Edmund to build her confidence. When you look at the whole thing, he said, um, he said Rhonda has great hands. She's knocking down boxing champions and sparring. Rhonda is a possible contender in the world in her weight class in boxing. Then we're finding out, she's telling us even, that she cried when someone threw her at Hyastan and hit a good ju judo throw on her, she would cry. Um, one of Henry Aiken's guys had uh, she was sparring with Rhonda. She was going hard, so he just hit her in the nose with a jab. She took off her gloves and ran out of the gym crying and never and didn't come back. <laughs> And when you look at her interviews herself, talking about what a crier she was when something would go wrong, it leads me to the whole thing. Then you couple that with the fact that Raquel Pennington and another fighter, I can't remember who it was, was paid to come in and spar with her for this fight with Amanda Nunes, had to sign a non-disclosure agreement that they wouldn't talk about the sparring. So when you put all this together, I believe these, the following things. A, Rhonda will come back and fight, but it may be 12 to 24 months before she does. I believe that eventually she'll come out. She'll probably lose again unless she has an extremely favorable matchup. And when she finally retires and, and splits from Edmund, he will do an interview where he tells us that all along he was protecting Rhonda, that he built this narrative and built her confidence to go out there and do what she did and did not allow her to get in any hard sparring in, in, a, in a camp setting with sparring partners who were out for their own agenda like you might find at any gym, you know, at Jackson's or AKA or ATT or whatever, and that he controlled everything so that she could have the confidence to go out there and win. And I, and, uh, I believe when, when there's a split between them, he's going to tell us that. What say you? You know... You know, that's, uh, it's an interesting theory, and the non-disclosures do lend credence to that theory. Um, I, it gives a lot of credit to Edmund in terms of his intelligence, so that's the, that could be the weak link in this uh, conspiracy theory, but, you know, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't argue too much against it. But the thing about that crying is, is... It's a double-edged sword because, yes, it will prevent her perhaps from learning, 
but it also demonstrates to you how she's all in. Every training session, every punch, every throw, everything she does is all of her. So when she fails, it hurts. So there's a good part of that because there are fighters who don't care. Well, let me let me give an example. I was at a sparring session at Luttrell's MMA in Albuquerque where Claudia Gadelli did her last camp. That was the one. Remember when I went with Baral and Formiga over there? Yes. And she was sparring with a guy. And basically the guy is asking um, Jussier, should he turn up the heat on Claudia? And Jussier says yes. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't know if that was a good idea. He goes out there. He hits Claudia, breaks her tooth in half. Mm. And you know what she did? She kept sparring and said, damn, I'm going to look terrible. Um, Coach Luttrell literally had her at a dentist gotten her feet, her tooth uh, repaired within 24 hours. Right. But, um, but that gives you an idea of, of, you know, and I saw Heather Clark in there, Heather Joe Clark doing some hard work. I've seen, I've been, you know, you've been around MMA gyms, you know, you've you know, done some sparring. She, to me, it's not normal. And and while Edmund may be criticized for being a well below average MMA coach, which we can all agree on. I mean, I'm not, you know. Well, statistically, he it just doesn't lie. Right. There's no question. I mean, nobody thinks he's a good MMA coach. A few people came out and defended him a little bit because the hurricane of. Uh, you know, sort of uh, exclamations that this guy, you know, shouldn't be coaching Ronda, et cetera, et cetera. A couple people came out to defend him a little bit, some Ray Longo, et cetera. That said, he can't be a complete idiot in life. Like, he has to have some intelligence. And I'm sure he knows Ronda way better than we do. He's been around her, and he would do whatever it would take to protect her, as would anyone. Like, Mike Winklejohn, let me tell you something about Holly Holm, and you heard it here first. You will, you, maybe, I don't know if you've heard her here first. You will never see her in the ring with Chris Cyborg. Um, you, you will not see that. Um, he will not let her, he is, you know, managing her from a standpoint of who she will fight and who she won't fight. And he's been doing that since she's like 16 years old. She will not be in the ring with Chris Cyborg. And that's a good move, don't you think? Well, she won't be in the ring with Chris until the money is right. Really? Well, I, it sounds like he's doing it from the boxing position where we pick fights we can win and, until the moment we can maximize our capital and then we pick fights we might win. Well, here's where we'll have our, our first disagreement. I, I think that he he doesn't want her in there with her because of her size and her power and it isn't a winnable fight and I don't think he'll put her in a situation where he thinks that she's going to look really bad and the the fight she just had with J Jermaine was very winnable for her um she didn't ultimately she didn't win but it was close um she actually came back in that fight but I don't think he'll put her in there with someone he thinks could possibly run her over and make her look bad because he he feels for her. Um, with Edmund's case, I don't think he knew when the train was going to run off the tracks. Yeah. Well, I'll ask you this: if uh, they offered Holly five million to fight Cyborg tomorrow. Well, first of all, it's unrealistic because it won't happen. So, right. you know, it's 
could would somebody I'm sure for the amount of money Hollywood say Mike I'm you know this kind of money me and my husband will be set up for life and I can you know then decide to retire and have a child you know which is what she's she's not going to have a child until she retires but yeah so I'm sure for the money but it's I I tell you I submit to you knowing I don't know Winkle John but I'm very close with Latrell Latrell knows Winkle John they you know basically started Jackson's together with Greg so I feel like he will not let her get in the cage with uh, with Chris. And we talked about it before, and, man, I don't want to piss off local people in Orange County, but I just I just feel like she's not, I don't know. What what am I trying to say, Brent? Help me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to get pissed off, so let's lay it out there. And, uh... I, you know, I, I just think she's been, you know, whatever she has done in the past has altered her in such a way that she has a performance advantage. And if you listen to Amanda Nunes, uh, the interview she did down in Brazil this past week, and they asked her, are you interested in fighting Chris? And she said, no. Chris is a big girl. She's bigger than I am. And, I mean, if you look at them height-wise, you know, they're the, the same size. I mean, she could put on the weight, but she's not interested to fight Chris. She would do it if it's Jermaine. So uh, do I think she's scared of Chris? No, I don't think she's scared of Chris. I think she feels like she's not going to have an advantage because of, you know, Chris to me doesn't look like the other girls in terms of the strength and power and the masculinity that she brings into it. I, I don't, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say that. You were, yeah, you're, you're doing a lot of dancing around the subject, but I'll, you know what? I don't think what you're saying is outside of the realm of what every single person who is not associated with her, so has no like fight in the game, would, wouldn't believe, which is that, I mean, she shows many of the characteristics of somebody who has abused anabolic steroids including the the deep voice mm -hmm. the the musculature um sh she looks like um somebody who is more in the bodybuilding world than she does someone who is in the mma world be with her with her physique and um you know just i mean steroids are rampant in jujitsu as well mm -hmm. um and it does give you an advantage uh, because let's say, well, well, although Vitor might say say something different this uh, as of uh, this past weekend, but but the effect uh, on men and men and women are different. And first of all, Vitor didn't look bad at all. And physically, his body doesn't look, but he was quick and he was move, moving beautifully. Um, no, but you also gain. So let's say you lost all of your musculature, all of that benefit that you got, right, with the steroids. But what you did gain was more training. So you've been able to log more hours because of your decision to break the rules than somebody who chose not to break the rules and had to allow their body to rest and recuperate and couldn't rev their engine up until, uh, you know, up into 8,000 mm -hmm. RPMs every single day. So even if we take out of the equation, which is not true, uh, that the, the steroids have no long-lasting effect, you still have the long-lasting effect of, the, of the, the summation of all of the extra hard training you got to do. So there's a, that advantage in that way as well. 
Yeah, and that that's true because you can go longer and harder in, in training. And if, if there's a Swedish study out there that suggests that that uh, you, that a women do benefit from these things more than men do a and b is that they believe that it will give you an advantage and you'll be able to more rapidly build muscle uh, based on testing they're doing uh, than somebody who's never used and I hate to say this because I'm like a huge fan of Chris I think she's an amazing athlete um, I don't know what she would look like if she were the Chris that we saw in that photo that I, I sent you um, did I, I sent I texted you that right uh, I'm, I'm I think it was last week um, it was the one where she was in Brazil with the first belt the first organization I don't know if it was jungle fighter what it was no, I'm, not, I'm looking at my text I don't have it here but okay I will I, I, think, I, I think I've actually seen that before though I know what you're talking about so yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating thing to see, and the thing is, is we just you know we just don't know. But I believe that she has an advantage, and she just doesn't look like the other girls. And I'm not trying to denigrate her. Again, it's not a thing. Like one of my friends on Twitter is the foremost defender of Chris, so I'm not you know like I I hate to do that, but it's just it's it's how I feel. It it may not be fair but I think there's evidence to suggest it and even Ian Kidd on Bloody Elbow who by the way just to shout out a couple of podcasts um, the uh, Three Amigos podcast with Ian Kidd and Steffi Haynes and Mookie Alexander uh, Knuckle Up and there's a couple of uh, Knuckle Up with uh, Eugene S. Robinson and then If I Did It with uh, Kid Nate and Eugene S. Robinson is fantastic uh, stuff really great uh, great listening and uh, something I think everybody would enjoy. I'm not afraid of anybody's podcast. I always pimp out uh, the, the, the shows that I like because um, I feel I do a good show and so do a lot of other people. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, what is your handle on Twitter? I want to get that to everybody if you're... Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't do the Twitter. You're no Twitter. Okay. I don't even do Instagram. I'm terrible. Uh, I really need to expand my social media presence, but Especially um, given the announcement that we're going to make later. <laughs> Are we going to well, make... Talk, and I'll talk about that announcement and why I haven't expanded my social media quite yet. Okay. To that. So I'm just okay. on Facebook with my, my actual name, which is Brent Littell, uh, B-R-E-N-T, and then my last name, L-I-T-T-E-L-L. Um, it's like Chuck Liddell, but it's with T's instead of D's. Which makes so. me even more cool. And by the way, you can get a tech... If you're into BJJ and you want to get some techniques, some escapes, some defenses, um, go to uh, Brent's uh, Facebook page, and that's going to get you to his... Uh, uh, actually, your blog. Um, let me see if I can pull that up it's real a, quick. Uh, yeah, I have the address here. Um, it's... It's Gracie Baja, and that's Baja spelled B-A-R-R-A, 72, the number, dot wordpress.com. So that's Gracie Baja, the numbers 72, dot wordpress.com. Gracie Baja, 72, dot wordpress.com. Check it. Perfect. And uh, check out some of Brent's technique and get some jujitsu in your life. 
Yes. Get some knowledge. If you want to check me out and uh, what I'm going to contribute to the show as well as Brent, um, and on Twitter, at MMA underscore BJJ underscore and life on Twitter. That's DJ San Marco at BJJ MMA, MMA BJJ and life. Today it's more BJJ than MMA, I'm not sure. But uh, but no, and, and I don't want to I don't want to get too hard on Chris. But the the bottom line was is that uh, she did not disclose the substance that she was using. She was actually caught uh, through a random test and then disclosed and then got a uh, post TUE uh, what they would call and that kind of nullifies the whole process of getting a therapeutic use exemption if you do it after you're caught with it. It's one thing if you have to go and get treated and then you bring it to them and say, hey, look, I had to go and get treated for X, Y, or Z. And then they say, oh, well, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll uh, uh, grant you a uh, post-therapeutic use exemption. They didn't do that. They were caught. And then who knows what they were doing with that substance. So um, I did text you the photo so you can take yes, a look at yeah. it. Yeah, and it is a very large and stark contrast. One of the uh, telltale signs that I find um, for usage is also the uh, the trapezius muscle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's yeah. very difficult for people, especially women, to develop traps. And so she actually has significant trap uh, growth in that. You know, but she'll say it's because of uh, harder workouts. And well, look at Sarah McMahon. I mean... Sarah McMahon is a muscle upon muscle, but she doesn't sound like, and she still looks like, a girl. Like, she doesn't look like she's been altered. Helen Maroulis, the Olympic wrestler from Huntington Beach, was in Whole Foods the other day. Same thing, you know. There's, women are very built, but they don't look like they've been, or sound like they've been altered. How tall is Helen? She was quite short. It's like a little compact ball. Also, there's no video of uh, any other MMA, female MMA fighters lifting Tito Ortiz off the ground during sparring. I don't know if you video. No. Cyborg gets put in a triangle by Tito. They're training over at Clevers in Huntington Beach, I believe. Yeah. And so Cyborg gets stuck in, a, in Tito's triangle and literally picks him up off the ground and slams him. And Tito, <laughs> Ricardo Arona style. Yeah, and Tito is like probably... 235. Oh, easily. I'm betting. He's gigantic. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's a massive man. Um, he stole my table once in Vegas, and I, uh, I couldn't tell. Like I was, I had been sitting at this table in Vegas, and then we, we had all our drinks there, and I went to go get some more, and then I see this giant, like head of a man and giant man sitting at my table. Uh, it didn't take me long to realize it was him, but I was shocked at the sheer size of his frame that's a lot of guys like when you see Forrest Griffin it's just like he's a big man yeah this is just a big dude so she lifted up a guy who I doubt I could lift up off the ground um now I'm not a professionally trained athlete like she is but I'm a pretty big and strong guy so (laughs) yeah there's probably not a lot of guys in our gym maybe Stuart or I don't I don't even know or big Greg I don't know yeah that's it's it's phenomenal but um I I wish her um, all the luck, and uh, hopefully I, she's lost out on millions of dollars that I hope that she can recoup before she retires. And um, other than that, it's just so ambiguous. We'll just leave it at that. But uh, I more... wanted to ask... Sure. Oh, 
wanted to ask you something if you'd heard or maybe you've talked about it today too is about uh, the McGregor Mayweather fight. Um, um. Well, you know, they, you know, Floyd said, you know, I'm coming out of retirement to fight Conor McGregor, and he's trying to egg Conor on to sign the contract. The problem is what we don't know are three things. We don't know, A, the base salary, B, the pay-per-view cut. We don't know, C, if it's going to be in a cage, or, or if the UFC is co-promoting, will it be in a cage or a ring? We don't know, D, is this going to be four ounce gloves or I mean I've you know tweeted Connor's team over and over you know fight for four ounce gloves and and a cage so that Floyd can't lean back into the ropes he won't have 16 ounce gloves to use to block shots and parry with it'll change his entire game and make it more even for you and then my friend like Larry Pepe from Pro MMA Radio uh, my boy for many many years in MMA media he he has told, assured me that uh, Floyd will not capitulate on any demands that Connor has. He's going to say, "You, ha this is X. You either take it or don't." Yeah. Well, today I guess I had seen a, a rumor on the internet that they had actually reserved one of the uh, the arenas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't know what kind of money that takes to put a deposit down, or even if you do have to put a deposit down. Uh, but it's interesting, and it works out for MMA too. If the fight doesn't happen, it just keeps MMA's name in the news. It keeps boxing in the news. I think it's a win-win for both industries if it doesn't happen. If it does happen, it's a win-lose because whoever wins, their industry is going to take a lot more credit um, than obviously the person who loses. I don't know that that fight will ever take place, to be honest. I don't see who it benefits in the end in terms of the fighters. Like, so if Mayweather wins, it was a foregone conclusion. He's the better boxer. Um, and then if uh, McGregor wins, Mayweather will claim that some kind of rule issue or something like that, like the four-ounce gloves or whatever it may be. So. It is a pay-for frat party, and we're all coming. Now, yes. how many cups of beer we get there before the keg runs dry? And I assume you're going to get maybe a six ounce plastic cup and have your first beer and then the keg's going to run dry. But you're going to pay, you know, $30 for that one cup of beer. <laughs> so that is what I see happening. It'll be a big event. And, and as you said, at the end, it won't mean anything because Conor will say, I could beat you in a real fight. You're not a real fighter. If it's with 16 ounce gloves and ropes and all that, Floyd will be able to dance around, he'll be able to lean back, he'll be able to do, to jab and do a lot of the things that some of our guys in MMA, a lot of our guys, most of our guys can't do, not all, but most, and that will just frustrate Connor, and he'll make it very difficult for him to set up his left hand, I think. So, if he hits him, could he drop him? Sure, it's, you know, it's quite possible. Um, but... We're all going to pay to go to the party. We're going to pay a lot of money, and at the end, we're going to sit there and talk about it for days, and and it's going to all be for nothing. Yeah. So that's what I see. Unless it we see Brent, if you get to know me at all as a fight fan, and let's face it, I don't care who you are in the game. If you're Ariel Helwani or you're Sherdog or you whatever, we're all fight fans. Everybody is. Now, whether you get paid or not to cover the sport is another matter. For me, I like fair fights. So to me, when you start talking to me about something like 
John Jones and Dan Henderson, I think it's idiotic. He would have embarrassed Dan worse than Cormier did when he when he picked him up and dropped him on his head. And he would have el- at that time John was really dropping elbows hard on people. Do I need to see that happen to a legend like Dan Henderson? No. But people were all excited that John Jones was going to grapple him. Like, hello, he doesn't submission grapple. And John's huge. And he has an 81-inch reach. What is he going to do? <laughs> What's, right. I mean, he can't out-wrestle him, can't out-submit him. He's much smaller and not as strong. What is he going to do? What, is he going to replay the 92 Olympics? Come on. <laughs> it's stupid. Yeah. And people want to see Kelvin Gastelum and Anderson Silva. Why? Why is that cool? We love to crush our our, our heroes and leave them. I guess uh, some people wake, do. You know, it's just like, oh, that guy was fantastic, but let, look, he's terrible now. Well, it's the same thing with BJ keeps coming back, and I, I, I'm from... a huge BJ fan, but I'm like, you know, I I wouldn't tell him not to fight because it's his life, his sport, his love. So he can do whatever he wants. But I will say as a fan, it hurts to watch someone so great then kind of linger in their career. But, um, but, he, for, but for him, you know, it's, it's his Budo. It's his, you know, I'm a warrior. For sure, his Bushido spirit. I accept that. But, I, you know, and, and I accept it too. But here is the, the idiocy that I see in some of the big MMA media. And if people like Ariel Helwani, when he says, oh, I, I didn't like it when it was Ricardo Lamas that was going to fight. This is when, upon the announcement, was going to fight BJ. But yeah, here, Rodriguez, who knows? You know, Are you <laughs> stupid? Uh, Ricardo Lamas is going to come at TJ, uh, excuse me, at BJ with a conventional MMA attack. Leg kick, jab, cross, maybe a single leg. He's seen all that. Nobody in MMA has seen anything like Rodriguez, and we're going to get to that later. But there was no way that BJ was going to be able to defend the volume, the sheer volume of kicks and techniques and punches and elbows and in and out. Of course it's a worse matchup, but people who are being paid to cover the sport can't see that. That I don't like. If you told me BJ was going against Ricardo, eh, let's have at it, man. Ain't nothing Ricardo Lamas is going to throw at BJ that he hasn't seen. He may throw it a little faster. He may throw it a little crisper, a little better, because he's younger. But it's not going to be anything that is going to embarrass BJ. Guarantee. Well, then you must have some strong opinions on GSP and Bisbing. Not necessarily. I just think it's stupid, but you know, and it holds up the division again. It's hard to deny George, but if I'm being fair, I don't want to be like, oh, well... I'm against, you know, all these other people jumping the line like Connor did. Because if you listen to the show I did the other day, I illustrated how they ruined basically the, not ruined, but they temporarily stalemated, stalled the 155 division. And they're about to do it here in middleweight by just taking Connor. Yes, we want you on 205. You missed 200. We're going to get you on there, but you're going to have to remate, re- rematch J- Jose Aldo. What? I don't want to fucking rematch Aldo. I already beat his ass in 13 seconds. Yes, but here's the thing, Connor. He's been with the company 10 freaking years. And he's lost once in like 10 freaking years. We owe the guy. 
So if you go and you beat him, you get a shot at the lightweight title. But we're going to have Khabib, we promised Khabib, who also has never lost a fight, a shot at Alvarez. So we're going to let him fight Alvarez, you're going to fight Jose Aldo, and after UFC 205, you can have your shot at the winner of that. Then you give an him an incentive to go and get that second belt. Instead, you virtually hand it to him, which was all crap because he never defended the uh, the featherweight belt either, right? right? Never has not won title defense. And then he's like, ah, I'm going to go off and have a baby. See you later. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry for fucking nobody. <laughs> and all of the interim garbage that goes on. I, yes. I was, I was shocked that that ever happened. You know, there had always been talk of like uh, GSP back in the day of um, unifying a couple weight classes or whatever. I don't know what you would call it, unifying. But, mm -hmm. Yeah. But, and, I, and I always thought it was a tremendous lose-lose. Uh, situation. Uh, whenever a smaller guy who's the champion goes up to fight a bigger champion, one, if they lose, it was expected. But then two, if they win, it denigrates the entire division. Um, oh, you wow. mean the like, middleweight? Yeah, so you know, it, it makes that division look soft because the guy from the lighter weight class came up and won the championship in that weight class. So I feel I've I was really surprised, but they just have kind of handed Connor carte blanche to do what he would like, and you know even talking about the Mayweather fight shows you how much carte blanche. Because I feel like any other fighter who did that, Dana would tell them to shut up. And... But here's here's the analogy, Brent. What if you took all of us and you put us in the room, right? And there's no Felipe, and and there's no nobody's in charge. You got just do what you want, guys. What open mat? What would we do? Uh, look for the next authority to tell them what to do. Uh, yeah, there's no authority. Every, it's open mat. So what would we have is all different belts trained with all different guys, showing techniques, sparring. Some guy's going too hard. Somebody gets hurt. And there's no. there has to be an adult in the room to have a proper event take place. In this case, it's the UFC. In our case, it could be jiu-jitsu. And not to say that Connor isn't the most amazing, dynamic figure that we've ever seen in MMA, in my opinion. But you have to give and take. So in any business deal, what they say, and we said this the other day, a great business deal is when neither party is 100% satisfied, right? Mm -hmm. So what went wrong with 205? One person went away 100% satisfied, and you had four or five other parties that went away less than 50% satisfied, much less. Meaning Jose Aldo, meaning Habib Nurmagomedov, who's never lost in MMA, etc. And you stalled both divisions. And now you still have no movement. Now we're getting to, what, we're almost at the end of March? We have no movement in the featherweight division at all, and we have no movement in the lightweight division. Because they went 100% to Connor. And so it's Dana White's job and that of Patrick Whitesell and that of Ari Emanuel to say, Connor, we're gonna, we want you on 205. You're going to be the main event of this card. But you know what? You got to give Aldo a rematch. We have to do We owe him. And we owe Khabib. We told, we sent Khabib a contract and then canceled it. Yeah, I, I just uh, don't can't know do what that. They're negotiating. They've given him so much now. He has, 
I don't know how you even begin to leverage back. That was it. That was the opportunity right there. Yeah. And they screwed it up. And then and and then it's you know it's gone downhill from there. Then so you had those two mistakes, right? And then you said, okay, well Damian Meyer can get the next shot because Stephen Thompson did not beat Woodley. Was it a draw? Uh, sure, or majority draw? Whatever. Sure, but she didn't beat him. You didn't go in there and take it from him. He should have had a 10-8 round, won that fight. You give Damian Maya his shot. Now you told Damian Maya you need to fight Jorge Masvidal in Dallas. So he hasn't gotten paid yet. He's waiting and waiting, waiting. Hasn't gotten paid. Stephen Thompson's been paid twice. Yeah. So if Damian gets his shot, and you tell Mister uh, Wonderboy, you go and fight Masvidal or whoever they wanted at the time. It would have been Donald Cerrone had he won. And then if you win that fight, you can come back to the title. But they screwed it all up. So now you screwed up featherweight, lightweight, and now you screwed up uh, welterweight. Now you ready? Now we're going to do middleweight because <laughs> Yoel Romero, uh, you know, you and I, as again, you and I sat there at John's house and we watched um, we watched Jacare, uh, him grab the fence when Jacare could have had a takedown, pass guard, and that could have been all she wrote right there. That's all that guy needs is you to be on the floor for seconds before right. he takes control. And he cheated. He got away with it. And then he got the decision, which we thought, I, don't, I think we thought Jacare won that fight. Yeah, I did, I did. Okay, I, I believe that was the temperature in the room. Now, granted, we're all jiu-jitsu guys, but hey, I yeah, love and, wrestling, and I love And Jacare is one of my favorite jiu-jitsu players of all time. So. Yeah, and but Yoel Romero's a freak. He's the only guy who beat Kel Sanderson twice or whatever. So um, so now, in, one th in five minutes here, we have ruined featherweight, Lightweight, welterweight, and middleweight. What's next? <laughs> so, do you see what I mean? Is they're trying to create something when it'll naturally happen if you let the guys who earned it in a meritocracy get that shot. It's going to happen for you. You would have had the grappler, Damian Maya, who will either get a takedown and submit Woodley, or he will get smashed into an oblivion by right hand. Right? Correct. And what would be more cool than seeing the best boxer in welterweight, one of the best boxers in the entire UFC, fight Stephen Thompson in, in Jorge Masvidal? You blew that, too. Now you got a grappler going against Jorge Masvidal. <laughs> What's going to happen? But that's, you know, that's why they needed to rein in Connor, and hopefully now he's off with boxing, and do you think he cares about coming back and fighting Tony Ferguson and Khabib if he makes $25 million in one night? I don't know. Right. Plus pay-per-view. And tarnishing his, uh, his possible ability to gain more money in the boxing world as well. Yeah, I mean, that could be another thing. Somebody else will come out and want to fight him. Who knows? So, but... You know, to some degree, if he comes out and loses to Floyd, that'll be the best thing for, to happen for the UFC. That'll be awesome. They do not, because if he wins, then their bargaining position is lower. So, oh, they may lose. You know, you bring up a great point I didn't think of. They may lose him forever because just the way that boxing structures their money is so much better than the way that UFC does. Why would he ever go back and fight for $13 million when he could 
do a pay-per-view card in boxing and get $40 million. Yeah, well, and he'd have to leverage the Muhammad Ali Act against his right to do that. The problem is that the UFC could keep him in court for quite a while. They would have to have co-promotional rights, so it gets, it gets really sticky. But Manny Pacquiao wants to fight him. So what happens if he goes out there and he beats Floyd? Manny Pacquiao will say, I'll do it. And then he is no longer the B side, he's the A side. He can demand yes. a lot more money. Yes. So it, it, it get, it's better for the UFC, actually, if he loses, to be able to come back and start fighting for his belt again. Because people who think Connor's going to retire, I don't agree. He's not. He's too young. He's full of too much piss and vinegar. His ego's too big to allow someone else to take the spotlight. So if even if he did retire for a short period of time... Another another rising star would come out of the woodwork like No Love or something like that, and then he would go, "I could beat that guy. I need to fight him," um, and he'd be back in it again. I, I, those fighters and athletes and competitors like that, they thrive way too much on competition. That's why they end up becoming problem gamblers and um, the, that kind of thing. So he would. I think that competitive streak in him would be. Uh, quickly brought out by somebody else gaining the limelight he thinks he deserves in spite of the fact that he's retired and he would jump back in that ring. I hear that 100%, my friend. Um, we are going to take a quick break here. Um, we're going to go out to Chicago. Does anybody really know what time it is? Brent, I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's uh, Chicago. It's got to be... I don't know if this group is like way too old for you or not. This because it shows the audience like how dated my my musical tastes are. But uh, in any case, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna get into a little bit of uh, Professor uh, Brent Latell's stories, um, the early days at uh, Eddie Bravo's Academy, and a little bit of Hanato Laranja. We'll take a look at a little bit of UFC news and notes, and then we'll get you out of here. So we'll be right back on MMA BJJ and life. Welcome back to MMA BJJ and Life. I'm your host, GJ San Marco, along with my co-host for the evening, Professor Brent Littell out of Gracie Baja in Irvine. What's going on, Professor? Oh, nothing much. Just uh, enjoying my uh, post-training glow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I have to, yeah. And how dare you put me in lockdown, by the way. You put me in lockdown today. Well, you're lucky I didn't just snap your calf off. Of it, so. <laughs> All right, I'll consider myself lucky. All right, and uh, relative to uh, lockdown, uh, smooth segue, um, another one of the uh, moves uh, invented by uh, Eddie Bravo, and um, I wanted to uh, ask you uh, a little bit about Eddie Bravo and, you know, I, I kind of had a way I was going to go through this, Brent, but I want to... I want to ask you, do, is, if you were to make a Mount Rushmore of BJJ that included, and, and if you need to expand it beyond five figures, let's go ahead and break the rules on that, or four figures rather, we can break the rules on that, but 
Who would be on your Mount Rushmore? If so, is Eddie on there? Ooh, man, that is a tough. Because if we're only getting five figures, you're going to get have to start with some of the key older guys. Like sure. Elio. Yeah, that's, I mean, Carlos and Elio are on there. Everybody's, right? Right. Okay. And then I'm going to have to go with um, Carlson, Gracie Sr. Yep. Because um, he really paved the way for jiu-jitsu guys in MMA. And then, I, you know, I'm not, I think Hoist Gracie absolutely has to go on there. Interesting. Yeah. Even though he is not the best Gracie at jiu-jitsu, um, he is the one, with the help of his brother, Horian, mm -hmm. who exposed jiu-jitsu to the world. Without Hoist Gracie winning the first couple UFCs, mm -hmm. we would not be here talking. So to leave him off of Mount Rushmore jiu-jitsu, I think, would be... Uh, blind to that idea um so now i'm at four already i have carlson carlos elio hoist and then does eddie make it into <laughs> that i don't <sighs> hoist is in the teddy roosevelt position it sounds like but anyway <laughs> yeah um for number five whew, i mean do you go with the most because all so if we look at those influence couple, yeah we have a couple generations and then if we look at just greatest BJJer of all time, I would have to say of the modern era would be Hodger. Ooh, really interesting. But uh, I think what I'm after is influence. Because okay. if we're going to say greatest, now we could, you know, we could go a lot of directions with that. But yeah, Hodger, you know, with the amount of titles that he's won, sure. But what if I just said um, most influential, that's changed or altered jiu-jitsu or something you know what i mean I, okay yes um that his that their style has ended up permeate, permeating the entire sport then i would definitely put eddie on that um up there so again elio carlos then I, I again you know what you you bring up influence but i just think they're so married the idea of who has also been the best that maybe I could let Hodger off there, but then you have guys like Gordo. Well, some um, people say Hickson's the, still the greatest jujitsu uh, fighter of all time. So yes, exactly. Th so but, there's but does Hickson, but does Hickson's style? Hickson doesn't teach. So, you know, if you want to look at influence, does Hickson's style end up out there in the, in the jujitsu world? I don't know because he keeps everything so secret. Yeah, only his son. And the, the closest representation of he is his son who's won what? He won Abu Dhabi and I don't think he won IBJJF. But He's never, you know. no, he, at Black Belt, I believe he won the Brown Belt, but at Black Belt he has not won a, a world championship yet in IBJJF. I think he has it in him. He, he could. Um, but Krohn didn't even train with Hickson. So I don't. There's there was an interview done a while back, um, and it may it, it's different now because Hickson has come around a little more since Crohn's opened his academy. But Crohn said that he'd be hard pressed if he trained with his dad. I think more than fifty or a hundred times he said. What? Like last year. Yeah. You are so kidding father, me. Yeah. 
So really the guys who don't get the credit but should for Crone are guys like Henry Aiken, who was running, helping to run the uh, Mm -hmm. academy for him. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that was surprising to everyone when when that interview came out and they asked about his father and he said he had been on the mat with him. He said what would happen sometimes is he would go train at the academy and then um, he'd come home and Hickson might say, like, oh, how did it go? And if he had a question, uh, then Hickson would answer it. So you do get a, uh, I mean, that's such a huge benefit. Any, in any spot you have trouble with, you get the, the premier guy to answer your question. That's fantastic. But it's still not training with him all the time. So, so when we talk about influence in jiu-jitsu world, even the kid who is supposed to be influenced by him uh, the most still is saying that, hey, you know, I'm influenced through someone else he taught, but I'm not influenced directly necessarily by him. I'm sure if Crone was on the show, he would say something different, but I'm just going off of that. Um, so, you know, I'll throw Eddie up there in the influence because he's brought the, the lockdown, the half guard, the, um, I wouldn't say the rubber guard. We haven't seen a tremendous amount of rubber guard in the UFC. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just that it's, it's such a, a comprehensive system that you need people to devote themselves to it. So you have a couple guys right now in the UFC who have, uh, Ben Saunders, mm-hmm. Tony Ferguson, but we don't see him on his back too much. Right. Um, who else does he have fighting for him? Well, there's Alan Jabon. Right. But, but he, he doesn't end up on his back too much either. It's funny. The guys who go to Eddie end up turning into strikers <laughs> <laughs> he's, yeah he's really good Muay Thai striker Jomon yeah well he started off I am I'm, I'm gonna pat myself on the back I have nothing to do with his success but I gave him his first jiu-jitsu lessons that's um, so cool man he had done he, he was training Muay Thai at our at the bomb squad which is the Eddie's original gym mm-hmm. with a guy named Chris Riley who owned that gym and then uh he decided he wanted to start doing some jiu-jitsu, so he did three private lessons with me. Um, and, and he was a quick uh, he was a quick learner. It became apparent really early on that his physical skill set um, and his ability to his coordination and ability to make things work in real time was far beyond most other people's, and that he would make it very far in the sport. He was an extremely late start in terms of combat sports because he didn't start Muay Thai till his mid-20s. So Fascinating kid. And you, let me just stitch back for one second then we'll continue yeah. on Joban. If we, you know, I can get uh, Tony Pesensky to come on with us, Professor Tony Pesensky, and if you want to interview him with me, we can sort of delve into Hickson and Crone since he was his assistant for two years. Does that sound good? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he did the okay. uh, jiu-jitsu... Global Federation. Federation, which is now falling apart since he's left. So yeah, he, he was the glue that held that together. Hickson he was. And 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 here's the thing, and it's Hickson's absolute right to not share. And so I am not criticizing Hickson for this because it's his life, and he can choose what to do. Um, but time and time again, we have seen that he's not particularly motivated to get his brand of jujitsu out there to people who are not directly in contact with him, meaning at his academy or, you know, in his association. It's it's a lot of work. I mean, and he when he goes and he travels overseas, he gets paid a lot of money. Yeah. I believe to do so. But we will we'll get uh, 
uh, airman uh, now with the U.S. Air Force yeah. and Professor Tony Pasensky, whom I spoke with last Sunday driving home from uh, the kids' tournament in San Diego, and he's uh, is vying for officership in the Air Force. But he uh, he'll talk to us, and and we'll dig into it. My personal feeling is that Hickson, and I'm based on nothing at all, and I don't Tony won't even confirm this that Hickson has probably shared some secrets with Crone that he hasn't shared with anyone else. But we'll 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 delve into that. We'll get him on, and you and I can sort of dig in there. Okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. I um, I think that's a that's a that's a interesting statement. Because and and I'll just kind of end this this uh, put a bookend on this conversation with that. But with that, but do they hide things from the people who pay them and who chair who who like worship them? And if they do, how messed up is that? And you believe that because you're not seeing them in the big tournaments and stuff. Right. Well. I will tell you this. I have a friend. Um, he's now a district attorney. I don't know how much he wants his name in the okay. jiu-jitsu world anymore. But he was one of Hickson's first. Um, oh, you know what? He just didn't. You know what? I won't use his name because I, I forgot That's fine. A, a documentary. His name is Ethan Milius. Okay. Um, Ethan Milius' father is John Milius. John Milius is the man who co-wrote uh, Apocalypse Now, um, the Conan series for the screen um, he was the he's creator of Rome on HBO. Mm-hmm. Oh, I and love that series. Little known but hysterical fact, um, he is also the basis for John Goodman's character in The Big Lebowski. So, <laughs> oh my God! So John, John Melius, the filmmaker, was actually asked by the Coen brothers to play himself in The Big Lebowski, and he was. And a guy like him takes himself very seriously, and he he was like, no way. Anyway, so so John, is back in ni- in the early '90s, got into jujitsu because he was all about combat and everything like that. And he brought his son Ethan with him, and Ethan got into jujitsu, and and Ethan was at the Gracie Academy. Um, and the thing was, him and Mark Lehman, he like Mark Lehman. If you ask Mark like uh, Mark Lehman, who helped him to learn the most jiu-jitsu he'll say ethan he won't he won't talk about his his time with other people he'll just directly say ethan wow Um, they were told specifically when they were teaching there that they weren't allowed to show certain techniques um those are forbidden for these students and some might make the argument that the students weren't ready for them but they were even forbidden from ethan and ethan and mark were kind of shunned by the gracie academy and then eventually left and went to uh Beverly Hills Jiu-Jitsu, but they, uh, w- because they went down to Brazil, they were filming the tournaments, seeing all these moves they weren't learning, and then trying to learn them, and then told, no, you can't learn them, um, you, not, you, we don't do that here at the academy, and then they left. So I think there is some merit to the idea that there is a, a hidden curriculum that is saved for the young champions of the, the family, and that it is sometimes sharing too much is frowned upon, but the great thing about jiu-jitsu now is that it's so open source with YouTube. Right. You can't, you can't hide much anymore because the competition footage is all there, so you can keep rewinding it. There's a great guard study of Crohn's that's out there. Um, really? So so you can, uh, you can do that. So I'm glad that, that YouTube has helped to open it up to the world. 
Wow. All that, you know, if you want to talk about putting a book in, you pretty much blew it out of the water, Brent. So. <laughs> Uh, the big, it's the Big Lebowski reference, I think. I had a, I had John over at my house once, um, John Milius, the uh-huh. Big Lebowski, and he, he was, it was funny. He was there because Stephanie Gracie, his granddaughter, was there. Ethan has a child with Rose, uh-huh. and so Stephanie was at our house with Ethan, and then John came, and we were watching that. Uh, I can't remember the name of the movie. It's, it's making fun of ice skaters with Will Ferrell. Oh um, yeah, I know. It. I can't remember the name. It's it's absolutely hilarious. Blades of Glory. Yes, yeah, okay. yes. And so they have Will Ferrell doing a bunch of jumps and twirls, and John is watching this, going, "How did they train him to do that? How?" Did he... <laughs> and, it, and we're looking at him like, "Dude, you work in the movies. That's fake. That's CGI and green screen." But he was like entranced. So, you're saying this is the guy who created Rome? He created Rome. He wrote, I believe he co-wrote, you can IMDB it, um, Apocalypse Now. He wrote for the the screen, he wrote the Conan series. Um, He did the adaptation. He wrote Red Dawn. That's his his big big one that he loves. He wrote Red, Red Dawn. Oh, yeah, another great one. Yeah. Wow, they're like all cool movies. He actually is um, the guy who invented the cage for jiu-jitsu. So Horian, he was training with Horian, and Horian was trying to figure out, you know, how to... Contain the action? Contain the action and yet make it different from boxing and exciting. And the, uh, so, uh, so John came up with the octagon cage, which I think, I'm not familiar enough with the Conan series that I have to watch, has some basis in one of the Conan movies. But he goes, we should use the octagon. So he actually invented the octagon. You sure it wasn't the Thunderdome with Mel Gibson? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We don't need it. I can hear Tina Turner now. Oh, boy. No, keep going. I'd like to hear things. No, that's fine. I don't want to lose any audience that we we do have. And you know what? I'm I'm making a command decision. We're not going to actually break down... Any um, any more MMA today or talk about any fights because this is just um, this is just too fascinating. I might you know just throw a quick couple of quick hitters, but I want to return to the Bomb Squad because yeah. this is before Tenth Planet was a thing, and then we'll sort of close with your recollections of of life at the Bomb Squad and perhaps even one of my favorite people in all of Jiu-Jitsu, and I know one of yours. Mr. Professor Renato Laranja. Master, master. Master, I'm sorry, master, mestre, mestre. Mestre, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the bomb squad. I have, see, I don't know how PG rated uh, (laughs) you want to keep this. Because the bomb squad was such a unique place. It was this little dingy boxing gym. Mm -hmm. um, That got taken over by Chris Riley, who was a Muay Thai guy. He was the first american to win uh, there was some major tournament in lupini stadium he was the first I, I don't know my muay thai well but so so he opened that gym eddie came to him right after his win with coiler could i rent some space in the evening times to teach my jiu-jitsu and then that's how it started um the bomb squad wow uh, the 10th 10th planet and um and then one day we had this wonderful soap star actor named uh, Rasan Orange come in, who, <laughs> who wanted to uh, to do jujitsu, 
and he was a good actor and, and it, the, that's back when uh joe rogan would train with us every day and it was an it was an interesting crew ari shafir i don't know if you know who he is He's yes like, yeah yeah the comic and by the way the tie-in is Joey, uh, Renato Laranja's dad was Joey Diaz's karate teacher in New York City. I could see that because, yes, um, the, the tattoo that Renato has on his shoulder is his father's uh, karate gym's um, the logo. logo. Yeah. Wow. So it meant a lot, actually. So Renato is a lifelong martial artist. Um so we yeah we had uh, those guys all there and it was kind of a it was a wild time there was there was a lot of um, again you know like I said I don't know how how you how raunchy or how not raunchy you want this to be so you know what I'm gonna leave it up to your discretion do we want kids from GB to listen to this no. or okay <laughs> no. yeah also I'll keep it PG I okay guess, you know. Um, but it was also an electrifying time because it was the beginning of Ten Planet. Eddie had just beaten Hoyler, um, and um, so there was all this excitement that there was this new jujitsu system that was revolutionizing the world, and it was really cool to be at Ground Zero. And if we were talking about Hanato, because that's kind of how we segued, so Hanato came in, and he there's been an evolution of Hanato. Um, and the first, at first, Hanato used to pick fights with new students in the class. It was kind of like a rite of passage. Uh, As a joke? Yeah. Uh, well, they didn't know. So but Eddie was gut-checking them. Like, uh, Hanato would come in okay. and he'd go, who, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? Get out of here. I don't, you know, da, da. Like, get up and fight me. I, I, I obviously can't do his, his, uh, his accent. And so then we'd see, like, how did the fight or flight response of the person and all that. And so one day, Chris Howder, this is how Hanato, um, Kind of evolved away from that is Chris Howder came in. Chris Howder being one of the first American black belts. Uh, he got his black belt from Higan Machado. There's this thing called the Dirty Dozen, and they uh, are the first 12 Americans to get their black belt. Wow. Like Craig Kukuk from Henzo, and then I, I forget, I think Bob Bass might have been next from Higan. Matt Sarah, maybe? I don't know. It's, it's even before Matt Sarah. Matt Sarah, okay. So I would have to look it up, and it's, it's, it's messed up because it keeps changing, but, but Chris Howder is like four or five, and then he'll move to seven, and then he'll move back to four or five, but um, <laughs> because there's just a revisionist history. So Chris came in with his wife, and Hanato, one, didn't know who Chris was. Eddie obviously did, but um, so Hanato calls out Chris to a fight. He's like, you know, like, get up, get up, fight me, doing the whole gut check thing. Um, and then Chris is – so Chris actually was very – diplomatic he was visiting a gym and he's like you know what man i'm not here to do that like if you want to roll let's roll i'm not here to fight da, da, da. and his wife comes out of nowhere and just gets in hanato's face like she's lock him up and we stop it because she's getting too heated like she had his back she was down for him that was really cool actually that was like a moment where, where i think he realized like damn like you know i got my ride or die chick here um and so we changed it, or we, I, I didn't have part of the creative process, so Eddie and Hanata. <laughs> you were viewing it. <laughs> yeah. To where he would pick fights with Eddie only. That way we could control the reaction in the room, and we wouldn't get somebody who was, you know, either feisty or had a friend there who was going to jump Hanato. But, <laughs> here's the thing. Um, we still ran into some issues when it came to that. 
there was a time where Eddie was, was doing his shtick with Hanato, and there was a visiting purple belt from Jean-Jacques Machado's big dude, um, this guy named Chuck. And Chuck didn't know what was going on. He didn't know it was a joke. And so he started to sneak up on Hanato to sucker punch him when he was talking bad to Eddie. And I saw it all going down, so I grabbed Chuck and I like explained what was going on, and he calmed down. Hanato thanked me, and then that was kind of it. And then like a couple years later, maybe it would have to be like five or six years later, they're still doing the Hanato versus Eddie saga. And then Hanato was doing, picked on Eddie and um, the MMA fighter, uh, Matt Mitrione was there. <laughs> the heavyweight. <laughs> heavyweight. I believe he played NFL ball or at least yes. he, was on a he was on a practice squad at a minimum. He did. He played for like the Bills or something, I think. Yeah, he's a big dude. Big kind of like, he seems like kind of like frat bro, like, I'll just hit somebody, I don't care, you know, that kind of Oh, yeah. So, Hanato's doing this thing, and Matt Mitrione is getting feisty, too, and he starts creeping on Hanato to sucker punch him while he's talking bad to Eddie, and I grab him, I grab Matt as best as I can, like a, <laughs> like, a like a flea hanging onto a German Shepherd, and I'm like, hey, dude, this is fake. Like, calm down, this is a joke. Just let, you know, let the joke play out. But he is so angry and seeing red that he can't even hear me. You know, locked on target. There's, there's the missile can't be put back in the silo, and I'm trying to hold on to him while Eddie and and uh, and Hinato scuffle a little bit. And then, this is a guy with knockout power, by the way. We're talking about people who has KO'd heavyweights in the UFC. Now looking down the barrel of a like 175 pound Hinato Lananja. Yes, uh, I ended up managing getting him under control, and I think. From now, now that kind of the cat's out of the bag with Hanato, I think they've been able to avoid a lot of those safety issues. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there have been a couple of times where it's been very dicey for, for Hanato in terms of that. But yeah, that all started at the Bomb Squad. It's been a great evolution, and I'm really excited for to see where kind of Hanato takes this. And I, like, I think you've mentioned he's on a uh, MMA podcast as well with uh, Adam Hunter, who's yep. a great great comedian and a, a better high school wrestler too um and then i don't know who else is on that, that. uh somebody named cb gold i don't know who that no, is, I don't know who that is. Yeah. Uh, and um he actually wasn't on this week's episode i don't know why he might be working or doing something but he's also teaching uh if you look at tyron woodley's champ camp He's teaching somewhere in like Hollywood or Beverly Hills. I think he said he's uh, Hinato is is either training slash teaching at two different academies right now. Well, that's in addition fantastic. to so yeah, it, it is great. I I was jokingly telling him I jokingly invited him to my birthday at Whole Foods, and then I said I'm just kidding, you don't have to come. But I just <laughs> <laughs> but I, I am friends with him on Facebook because. Um, I just uh, I have uh, one Hinato Laranja story, perhaps two. But when I uh, moved here to LA in, in into the area in the summer of 2014, it coincided with the uh, the Josh Barnett against um, Dean Lister uh, Metamorphosis. Remember that one? Yeah. And and I think it was uh, Chael Sonnen against. Um, what was his name? Andre Galvao. So 
we bought tickets and here's me and my wife the two geeks from back east that are in LA just absolutely soaking it all up and when we go to um, to Metamorris I told her there's only one person I really want to meet and that's Henato Laranja because I was already familiar with his work and um, it was at that auto museum the Peterson Auto Museum so I go to the bathroom and me and my, I've already got my wife saying stuffs, you know, and some of the doing some of the Henatoisms in with her already very broken uh, Br Brazilian accent. So, so she was playing into it all. So I go to the bathroom and I come out, and of course she calls me love. She goes, "Hey, love, is him?" And she's standing there with uh, arm in arm with Henato Lananja, and it was just couldn't have been any better. So I went and took a photo with him, and um, she took photo with him, and we were just couldn't have been happier. And then I, I found him on Facebook, and he actually responded to a couple of my my messages. So um, yeah. so that's all I know about him. But he's, it was a, great. he's a super super nice guy. A uh, little funny funny little story too. Like while people were chill, still trying to figure out who he was, and and you know twenty seven time world champion somewhere, um, he was on an ad campaign. For Wells Fargo, so whenever you would go to an ATM, it would be a picture of him in an office setting. I'm getting a little feedback there. You got it? Hello? You there? Yep, you're on, Brent. Okay, I'm fine. just. Um, then there was a picture of him on, on all of the Wells Fargo ATMs, like typing into a computer. You know, one of those typical stock photo office deals. Yeah. Also, when you went into a Marriott, um, as part of their free Wi-Fi or charge Wi-Fi thing, they, they put up a uh, triangle ad on the uh, tables in each of the rooms, and he was in there playing on the, uh, what's it called, on the on the computer. Mm -hmm. So one day I was at the Marriott, and uh, I think I was in Kauai, uh, on the island of Kauai, or maybe, I don't know when else would I have stayed in the Marriott, I think that was where it was, and I saw the ad of him, so I texted him, I said, hey man, you know, you're on this ad in, in, in the, at the Marriott in Kauai and then he was like what and he got all pissed off because they weren't supposed to be using that picture without paying him a bunch of money mm -hmm. so they they'd only approved it to be used for like internet usage not print usage so then he ended up getting a lot of money out of uh, that deal too so I was happy that I, I shot him that text message about his uh, his personage but being used but it was funny watching people go wait is that Hanato Larange on Wells Fargo <laughs> <laughs> at the Marriott or whatever you know like he's a International man of mystery. He's like the Dos Equis man. He's phenomenal. I love the guy. I hope that uh, that uh, he will be at an academy near you. Um, which brings us to possibly another announcement. There may be a new academy in Orange County. Yes, yes. I cannot give specific details, and that's why I was alluding to the fact that my social media has been kind of limited in terms of Instagram and stuff because I don't want to open an Instagram up until... For sure. Things gone through, but I'm, yeah, I'm going to be opening a Gracie Baja here in the Orange County area, um, in the northern Orange County area, and it's been a lifelong dream of mine. Thank you. Mm -hmm. To uh, to make jujitsu my my life for a while. While I was in graduate school, I actually was uh, jujitsu is what supported me. I was teaching for Eddie, and then uh, I've been trying to get back to it. So I'll be opening academy. We're actually in the negotiation of the lease right now, and I'm waiting to hear back from the land lord or the management company in order to see whether they accept my offer. And then once that goes through, I can officially announce the location and then I'll do all of the 
Instagram, Gracie Baja at, you know, that location, whatever. So I didn't want to open up all these Instagram accounts and stuff and, and then have to change the name and do all of that. Um, and then people go, what is this? I'm not friends with this. So yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I have a partner um, who's going to be opening it with me. His name is Tim Lau. Um, mm-hmm. he's, he's a Gracie Baja black belt under Ulpiano. And I always mess up his last name, but Malachias. Malachias. <laughs> All right. Um, he runs the most successful Gracie Baja in the entire Gracie Baja system. Wow. Yeah, down in uh, Texas. I think he has something like 450 members, or maybe he hit the 500 mark already. So he's doing fantastic down there. So my buddy Tim has a black belt from him and a brown belt in the 10th Planet system as well. And he's uh, like a world-class gun- gunsmith. So in case you have a 1911 that needs fixing. Um, <laughs> no, I probably need one. Yeah, so so we're going to be going in it together. Um, it's going to be Gracie Baja in terms of all of the curriculum and so forth, but mm-hmm. it'll have a little bit of that 10th Planet flavoring, and I'm hoping to add a class with some uh, light striking with our grappling. So it will be grappling with striking, kind of like fight um, MMA simulation, but... Little, a little lighter for your typical hobbyist person who wants to see what it's like, you know, to to have to deal with punches and strikes because a lot of academies have lost that part of their curriculum, and I think it's extremely important. Most people who walk in the doors of a jiu-jitsu school first do it for self-defense, and then second, they get into the sport and get excited about the actual jiu-jitsu. But I would hate to disappoint people and do the, the switch where you go, oh, yeah, I'm teaching self-defense here. And they've never had a punch thrown at their face. Yeah, so. <laughs> I I agree with you one hundred percent. You have the same philosophy as I do. I think that it's self defense first, and I try to emphasize that when I'm helping uh, with kids class. Yeah, so that's um, that's gonna be. I'm hoping so. It, it'll be kind of a tiered thing where once I get the word from the uh, landlord, then it'll be all official. I'm I'm all approved by Gracie Baja, and then I'll make the announcement, um, and we'll do some pre pre opening stuff where we're going to have what's called like a founders club for the first 50 members and they they get some extra benefits for signing up early um, during those two months we're doing construction um, as well they'll be kind of like once we do our grand opening there'll be like an official certification for them where they'll be no, the, a numbered member you know so it's like you were number five member of the founders club like the um, sons of anarchy the first nine yes. right like yes. with jacks and his dad and yeah yeah, and I think it would be really cool, too, for them to ha- to keep that and then when they eventually make it on to black belt to kind of have their black belt certificate, too, so that they can, you know, show the progression that they made at our gym. So I am I'm super excited. It's going to be a very um, inviting and friendly place. Um, and so don't let that little MMA talk. It's not going to be MMA. It's going to be like, okay, you're in the guard. Here's how you deal with punches. Now be nice to your partner and start throwing some soft punches at them. But it's going to be... Um, the culmination of my dreams, and I'm I'm super excited. A little bit scared. You know, leaving, I'm leaving a career behind where I have steady paychecks. So. Well, I, you know, I'm scared too because now I've got someone on the podcast with me that has a graduate degree. Aren't you too too smart to be on here with me? Well, uh, I only have I an do, associate, so I don't know. I, Just I kidding. Do, I do eat paint chips sometimes to kind of bring me down a little bit. <laughs> that'll that'll help kind of balance even us out a little. Um, yeah. No. I'm really excited, and I think what Brent is alluding to is that if you want to take a class where there will be some rolling with strikes, you can, I assume. But That's you, exactly. You're, it's you're not mandatory. It, correct. Okay. It is something there 
so that we don't lose the reason that the art was invented and the reason why the art um, has flourished, which is that self-defense aspect. And I, and I want to keep that portion of the legacy alive. It would be like once on like a Friday, it would be like a Friday evening class. And the rest is just our standard um, jujitsu curriculum. But I just want to add that in there so that I can keep us connected to um, Grandmaster Carlos, Grandmaster Elio's vision of what jujitsu means. I agree 100,000%. I think every academy should be uh, focusing on the self-defense aspect of it. Um, I agree. And uh, I will be down there to roll. So if any of you out there want to hit me in the face with MMA gloves, um, you'll find me rolling at uh, Brent's Academy for that class also. So, <laughs> But I have a torn rotator, so just don't, don't tear my left shoulder. But you can hit me in the face. All right? All right. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think uh, I think we did pretty good. We covered a lot of ground. We left out some UFC. We didn't get to uh, Frankie Edgar, Yaya Rodriguez, or any of that stuff. But uh, I'll just throw my take in there as we close and get yours, Brent. But I don't think that this is going to be the party uh, for Frankie that a lot of people think it is. I think that um, this guy is just... To me, he's the next John Jones, not wrestling-wise, you know, not from that standpoint, but from the the ability to sort of overwhelm people with his skills, the way that John Jones used, okay, the you know, the oblique kick to the knee and his elbows and everything. I think this guy's the next great thing. So, what am I am I wrong in saying that this is a good matchup for Yair and not Frankie? Tell me if I'm wrong. I, I agree, and, and I um, uh, butcher his name, Yair. Um, he, he has some unconventional angles that make it really tricky to train for. So, I, you know, when you talk about someone like John Jones, is um, a lot of his, his length and distance make it difficult to train for him. And so I feel the same way. I feel Frankie's going to find it, it a bit difficult to get a training partner who can emulate what he does. Uh, in the proper way. So you you feel like this this favors Yair as well, right? Yes, yes. And I Frankie's, uh, I mean, Frankie's part of the Baja family in a kind of yeah. way. But so you know, you never. I never want to be like, oh no, no, he's not going to do well. But Frankie has had a tremendous career. Um, this is where you start to see that the uh, young and hungry are trying to take down. A little bit of the older, saltier dogs, yep. and it's a tough battle when you start battling, with, you know, uphill with age. And I just, I see too much in in favor of the the non-conventional younger fighter in this case. I agree. And on the heels of Frankie just signed this week a six-fight deal with the UFC. Oh, so, boy. so uh, we'll see what happens. I agree. He's from the. Gracie family, I got one love for everybody from the Gracie family uh, tree. Although I, you know, I am admittedly absolutely fascinated with your other uh, uh, master, Eddie Bravo. I think the guy is uh, revolutionary, and um, and we'll get to that later. He's going to do combat jujitsu. Some of your students may end up competing under the EBI rules and et cetera, and we'll get into that on a future show. I hope that uh, you'll come back as your your time allows. You're about to get really busy here shortly. Yes, yes. 
But uh, yeah, I'll definitely be back. My wife's giving me a stink eye because she, okay. she wants to start The Bachelor. All right, we're gonna <laughs> don't don't. By the way, don't ruin, don't spoil who wins because uh, it won't make it worthwhile for us to watch. But yeah, I I I won't I won't spoil it for you. Uh, he is Brent Littell, L I T T E L L on Facebook if you want to uh, connect with him and very shortly you'll be able to get a Twitter and an Instagram as he opens up his new Gracie Baja in Northern Orange County. We'll get to that. We'll get to that soon. Brent, thank you very much uh, for being on with me and uh, taking the time. All right. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, DJ. All right, brother. Let me know when you can come on again because we still, I'm, I'm, I'm working with her handlers, but you know, Carissa Qureshi, uh, might be the toughest interview to get in all of jiu-jitsu. I, I was, so, uh, but I'm still working it, okay? All right. <laughs> Take care, folks. Brent Littell, everybody. Thank you. All right, so that was, uh, that was Professor Brent. And we will take you out to the Allman Brothers with their most favorite song ever, Midnight Rider. I want to thank you guys once again. It's at MMA BJJ and life on Twitter. So it's at MMA underscore BJJ underscore and life on Twitter. On Facebook, DJ San Marco. And if you have any commentary, anything else that you'd like to hear, it's DJ San Marco at Gmail. Thanks a lot, everybody. Stay safe, and I'll see you down the road.